Okay, Anguttara Nikaya 9.5. Mendicants, there are these four powers. What for? The power of wisdom, the power of energy, the power of blamelessness, and the power of sustaining favorable relationships. That fourth one actually was a real sleeper. I never had seen that in any of the lists before I ran into this this teaching. And another way of translating that is inclusiveness. So we're going to take a look at these. Maybe. Aya, would you just go over there and make it happen? (laughs) So... The Buddha talks about wisdom a lot, and whenever we're reading a particular teaching, we want to pay attention to how he defines the terms in this particular context. So here he says that wisdom is when one clearly sees and clearly contemplates with wisdom the qualities that are skillful and considered to be skillful, those that are unskillful. And then he uses all these um, pairs, blameworthy, blameless, dark and bright, the ones that should be cultivated and the ones that should not be cultivated, the ones that are not worthy of the noble ones and the ones that are worthy of the noble ones and considered to be worthy of the noble ones. That's called the power of wisdom. So really knowing what's good and bad, what's wholesome and unwholesome, what leads to happiness and freedom and peace, and what leads the other way. And then the, the second one is the power of energy. And here the power of energy is described as generating the enthusiasm, trying, making an effort, exerting the mind and striving to give up those qualities that are unskillful and considered to be unskillful. So, well, I'll finish this and then we'll take an example. Goes back through that same list. Blameworthy, blameless, dark and light, to be cultivated or not those that are worthy of noble ones and not worthy. One generates enthusiasm, tries, makes an effort, exerts the mind, and strives to gain those qualities that are skillful and considered to be skillful. This is called the power of energy. So, for example, we recognize that we get irritated. One of the areas in my own life where I really struggled was in my relationship with my mother. She was a wonderful person. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) But she was very meticulous. A little maybe on the edge of kind of OCD or, you know, something there. It's a little obsessive, maybe. But there was constant correction. Even well into it forever. (laughs) Well into adulthood, it just never stopped. And it was difficult to not feel irritated for me. 
about that. And I, as I practiced and developed, you know, in the in the path, of course, I knew I didn't want to go there, right? I I certainly didn't want to kind of snap at my dear mother. I would always feel horrible if I did that. And I wanted to um, work with this, and I had to understand what it was. So this is really, you know, like if you look at the Four Noble Truths, the first noble truth is to recognize when there's dukkha. Well, that's dukkha. (laughs) You know, and... So there's this dukkha of feeling irritated or afraid of criticism and the, the guilt or remorse of saying something unskillful or being outwardly irritated. <laughs> and then the, the Buddha says, if you realize, you discover that there's this dukkha, this suffering there. You, you turn and you look at it and you try to understand it. Well, why does this bother me? And, you know, trying to work with that, trying to see. And I think over time I really became more and more patient. But one day I was reading one of the suttas. It's actually, we're not going to cover it in this uh, retreat, but if you ever get a chance to look at number eight in the middle-length discourses, it's called effacement. Effacement means kind of a rubbing away, rubbing away of defilements, rubbing away of unskillful patterns, erasing. <laughs> you know how when you have like really clear pencil marks and you have to rub them and rub them? <laughs> it's, it's like that. And the Buddha in that sutta, he gives this five five steps in a process for erasing these behaviors that we don't like or these qualities in us or these qualities that appear in our behavior. And I was reading through. There's a list of 44 (laughs) of these in there. I was reading through, and each one kind of like, do I do that? This is also a very important question whenever we feel like criticizing someone else. Do I do that? Where do I do that? Because this is, sometimes it's hard to uncover or discover, what is it that's really like in this character that is this kind of unwholesome that I need to apply some energy to? Anyway, in this list, one of the qualities that was listed was resentment. And I just suddenly it hit me. That's what I was feeling. I was resentful about this being told how to do things, what to do. Did you do that? Did you like that? And I already knew. I mean, this is coming out of her own anxiety. It really has nothing to do with me. Everyone who was close to her her got the same treatment. (laughs) And how could I be more compassionate and patient, but it was realizing that it was resentment that I needed to work with. It really helped. It helped understanding the nature of this particular characteristic, quality, habit, whatever you want to call it, reaction. So then how do you apply? First, First, it's the wisdom to see it, to see, yeah, this is a problem. 
if I would have kept blaming her, saying, oh, you know, if she just wasn't this way, then I wouldn't have these feelings. But that doesn't get us very far because we can't control other people. And when we have a sore spot, somebody's going to come along and poke it no matter how much we eliminate people <laughs> from, from our experience. We can't really get away with it, away from it because it's inside. So then how do you apply the energy? What's, what is the energetic effort? What do I do to erase this experience? So the Buddha says in that, in that particular discourse, the way to remove resentment is to have non-resentment. It sounds like, oh, really? <laughs> but re- actually to be able to investigate that and like what is the feeling of not having that resentment? And how can I land there instead? One of the tricks I taught myself was before I have, I mean, it was such a well-known script. I could anticipate it. When this happens, she's going to say that, and this is the feeling that's going to come up. And then what do I do? Can I bear it? Can I stay with it? If I know it's coming, it's easier. Can I be quiet? Can I be present with that feeling and not let that be what drives my behavior? And you can do it. And eventually, when you take this other route, the Buddha in that sutta calls it the smooth path instead of the rough path. The rough path is the resentment. The smooth path is the non-resentment. Or the rough path is anger, and the smooth path is non-anger. Can you get a sense of what is non-anger? The reason this is the way things are written is partly because of the Pali language. To make um, the negation of something, you just put an A on the beginning of it. But it's non-something. It's not sort of another word that's the opposite. To me, first, that's kind of like hard to kind of understand. But eventually, as I play with that, It's interesting because it's not like you go from anger to love or something or kindness. You go from anger to just the absence of anger. It's actually an easier step than some super positive response. So can I just have non-irritation? Or at least let the irritation be something that's felt detached without pushing me to say or do something from that place of irritation. So this is a kind of striving. Now, most of the time, I think when we think about striving in practice, in meditation practice, in our practice of Spiritual in our spiritual practice, maybe we're thinking I gotta like sit for three hours straight without moving, or I've gotta like meditate fifteen hours a day, or something like that. Interestingly enough, even though the Buddha 
really encouraged meditation and a lot of it. He, when he talks about effort and striving, it's really usually like this. It's how to really purify the mind of these unskillful patterns. And so this is what helps us develop. It makes our uh, three hours of meditation or our whatever <laughs> much better. <laughs> and it also really changes the way our life goes. So this is the kind of effort, power of effort, that we want, particularly as we're looking at those five fears. So the third one is the power of blamelessness. So we've got the wisdom, we've got the effort, or the energy, I should say, and then this power of blamelessness. This is a, a noble disciple, so the noble disciple on the path, making the effort, their conduct by body, speech, and mind is blameless. So back to that foundation of virtue. Well, one thing we have to take into account is that no one in this world avoids getting blamed, even the Buddha. And people blamed him, made up stories, blamed him for things. There's a time when uh, this other group wanted to defame him, and they um, claimed that he got this woman pregnant. And then they killed her, and they said that the Buddha did it. What a mess. What a horrible thing. And, of course, the Buddha was innocent completely, and that's what prevailed, and people found out that that was the case. But there's none of us who really, no matter how blameless our actions are, are going to be able to go through life without getting blamed at some point. The beauty of it is when you really are blameless, the accusation doesn't last long. We don't have to feel afraid of that. So this idea of not worrying about getting a bad reputation, if we're really keeping good moral virtue, and when we make a mistake, we admit it, we do what we can to rectify that, we make the, dis- the determination not to do that again, we can have our head up. We can feel confident. We can feel confident in a group. There's, no, there's nothing that is blamable, rightfully. Now this last one, sustaining favorable relationships. It's like, what? <laughs> it's wonderful, actually. Um, the Buddha said there are four ways by giving, by kindly words, by taking care and impartiality. Now, here's another whole thing to delve into. It's like, in, in, uh, there's more to this that I left out of the slide, the way he describes it here. But the idea is, 
If someone in your life would benefit from your giving them a gift, you give them a gift. If someone in your life would benefit from some kind and encouraging words, you say those things to them. If someone would benefit from your doing something good for them, some beneficial action, then you do them a favor. And this one about impartiality is interesting. And it takes a little more investigation, maybe. But let's say you've got two children. What happens if you treat one like your favorite? What happens when you're at work and you're on a team and the manager treats one person better than the others? What if we have friends and we are not impartial with them? So we could go much bigger. Racism, sexism. You know, if we really pay attention to being impartial, kind, considerate to everyone, respectful of everyone, there's going to be a much better chance of sustaining relationships. And why is this important? So I was thinking about those five fears. The fear of losing your livelihood. And I went back to my childhood where I grew up. A town, I, we, I was out in the country on a farm. My family farmed. And we were just outside of this small town, about 2,500 people. And, you know, when you live, live in a place like that, you know a lot of people. A lot of people know you. And it was even more um, interesting because most of the people in that town were Dutch. That's my heritage. All the way back. And because of that, a lot of people were related on top of just knowing each other for generations in this small town. When you cultivate relationships, you take care of each other. You have people to rely on. So one year, one of our neighbors got sick in the spring. The crops were about half planted. My dad went in and planted the rest of his fields. Another year, at, during the harvest, my dad got his foot in an auger. I don't know if you know what an auger is, but it's this, <laughs> some people do. It's this like tube with a blade that spirals and pulls the corn up into the top of the green bin. Yeah. His foot was pretty damaged, but it recovered, but he couldn't finish the harvest. Several neighbors came in and just finished it. When you have those favorable relationships and you give, you take care of each other, you don't have to be as afraid. You're just not out there in the world alone. So it's harder nowadays. We move all over the place. I mean, there's a downside to living in a place like that. My mother said she always felt like she was living in a (laughs) fishbowl. There's never like anything that's just all good. (laughs) Not in this world. It's got both sides. But this idea of how do I 
genuinely, not superficially, not because I want something back, but give, care, support, be kind, be impartial, to have this kind of network of friends. So you don't have to be so afraid of losing your livelihood. Oh, let's go on. Let's see. The best. Oh, that's still in here. Okay, let's take a look at that. This is the way the Buddha was describing it in this sutta. The best way of taking care of someone is to encourage, settle, and ground those who don't have faith in faith and those who are unethical in ethics and those who are stingy in generosity and those who are ignorant in wisdom. Now, of course, the Buddha was very skilled at how to help move that process along in a way that's respectful of people. But interesting, the best kind of equality it says here is the quality of these levels of awakening. So someone who's a stream enterer with another stream enterer, someone who's a once-returner with another once-returner, non-returner, non-returner, arahant, perfected one. The word is really arahant. With another arahant. It's like, what does that mean? Ayachitananda's interpretation, which I think is pretty reasonable, is like when we visit people who are you know, like well along on the path, probably have some kind of attainment. We, teach, we treat them equally. Like you don't just visit this teacher, but you, this other teacher too. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's a kind of, you know, wherever this impartiality might apply. We might even think, well, no, they don't care if, if I'm, treating them the same way. That might be true, but there's something open in the heart when we're giving. Um, She used this example with me today, and she said, you know, you might have one person who's an attained teacher who's like all kindness. That's Ajahn Gunha in Thailand. You might have another one that's like just blasting you, (laughs) make you shape up. And yet, you know, you give them the same respect and the same... Um, listening. I don't know. Does that example work for you? You might be able to come up with some that are more close to your own experience. So this is the way the Buddha describes it here. There's another sutta where he talks about someone who's got this huge following of people. He says, how do you have this huge following? And he says, well... I do what you taught me about sustaining favorable relationships, and here we are. (laughs) A lot of people. I continue? Okay. So these five fears. Okay, so if we have this network and we're trustworthy, If if we live in a way that's blameless, we're trustworthy. We don't have to worry so much about losing our our livelihood and we don't have to worry about getting a bad reputation. We don't have to feel insecure when we're in groups. We can just be ourselves. There's wisdom, energy, blamelessness, 
all those things that go into sustaining relationships, kindness, can just be ourselves and not be concerned about what people think. Or, you know, and then death? Hmm. Nobody knows how that's going to go. And if you, I'll say, understand that we've died many times, there's been many rebirths, and we know how to do it, and there could have been all kinds of circumstances. Obviously, couldn't have been that bad. You're here. You know, <laughs> we, can, uh, we can go through that. And there's a very good chance when we develop a mind of more freedom and peace, that that will be easier, especially if we're not clinging to so many things in this world. And what happens after death? Karma takes care of it. Good things. Been doing good things all your life. And learning from the mistakes. So that's, that's the sutta. So the noble disciple reflects on this. I have no fear of losing my livelihood. Why would I? I have these four powers. A foolish person might fear, a lazy person might fear, someone who's blameworthy might fear, someone who's not sustaining relationships might fear. I have no fear of disrepute or getting a bad reputation, and so on it goes through, through all of them. Foolish person might be afraid of a bad rebirth. A lazy person might. Person who does blameworthy things by body, speech, or mind might be afraid of a bad rebirth. A person who does not include others might be afraid of a bad rebirth. But the noble disciple who has these four powers has overcome these fears. Yes, indeed. I spoke to you earlier about arrogance, which is, by which I mean spiritual pride. But isn't it spiritual pride to say, I have these four wisdoms, I have no, I have no fear of blameless, being blamed because I'm leading blameless self? So the question is, you know, thinking about arrogance or spiritual arrogance, isn't it arrogance to be saying this and thinking like this? Well, it better not be. You probably don't really have that if it comes from a place of arrogance. It's like arrogance, like irritation, like anger, like pride, like there's a whole, you know, list. This idea of the self gets drastically reduced with wisdom. We see through that idea of me. The stream enterer has recognized that all this body, mental qualities, there's no me there. When somebody's like, I'm a stream enterer, man, you know they're not. (laughs) It's so apparent. You know, and so if we feel that coming up, then we want to go after it and really work through it 
because there's an underlying insecurity there that otherwise we wouldn't have to go to the arrogance. There's an underlying suffering. So we have to apply those first three noble truths, really understand where it's coming from, what's really, what am I really dealing with inside, why do I go there, do I, is it a lack of understanding of the way things are? You know, because, you know, we start to develop that humility. And then we know there's nothing to have that kind of puffed upness about. Um, because, you know, there's nothing really there. <laughs> you know, it's like, why be somehow proud of that? The further we get down the path, the more humility comes. The more and more humility comes. And that's one of the ways we can tell how far we are. You know, that, and, it, and like I said, arrogance just comes in that list of 44 things. I love that sutta. Um, I hope you read it sometime. Uh, it starts with, like, the first... Like, others will be cruel, but we will not be cruel here. goes through these 44 things. Others will be arrogant, but we will not be arrogant here. Others will be irritable, but we will not be irritable here. Others will be, you know, restless. It goes on and on. It goes through the five hindrances and the noble eightfold path. And, you know, and it's, it gives us this chance to really evaluate ourselves. And once we see something to not feel bad about it. It's like, it's okay. To really see it is such a gift. And don't spend any time feeling bad. Every one of us has these struggles and these problems and these things. And knowing that that's actually a, a stumbling block really helps because then we can you know, really look into how do I let that go? And to never feel judgmental of others or harsh with ourselves because we have these things, because we're living a really incredibly dangerous life. We're human beings. We've got so much vulnerability. And, you know, no wonder we're scared. No wonder we try to act like we know more than we know or whatever it is, or we know less than we know, (laughs) whichever way you play it, you know, like whatever it is that's there, um, it's totally understandable. If we knew what we've been through, all of us, we would be so completely compassionate with ourselves and with others. So to, to really recognize, okay, if I puff myself up around any kind of spiritual attainment, I have to back up. If I look down on someone else for any kind of spiritual non-attainment, I've got to back up. If I'm irritable with someone else because they're ruining my peace of mind, I've got to back up <laughs> and really look at you know what's, what's under that, what's behind that. You okay, Sophie? Good. But I cannot imagine the Buddha saying, I am blameless. The Buddha said a lot of things like that. He did, but he was so beyond the selfing that it was just totally no ego at all. 
So you hear it in a different it's it comes across in a real different way. Yeah. So yeah. It's a really important point you're making. It's like this is what we have to look look for, watch out for. Yeah. To be blamed. Yeah. So we think about praise and blame. Praise feels great. Yeah. It's terrible. But even if it's unjustified, I still feel a need to to stand up for myself or clear my name or Mm -hmm. protect myself in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess one question is again, like, obviously, all this, you know, takes a lifetime to develop and, and so on. But to, to use the powers in a, in a real time, um, you know, you know, yes. you know, you know yeah, I have friends, but I don't have, you know, it's not, it's not helping me right now when I'm being blamed. Like, mm-hmm. just trying to put mm-hmm. the, the powers and the, and the fears together. Right. And, then, and then part two is, um, which kind of relates to reflecting on, you know, doing wholesome things and, and avoiding unwholesome things and, and cultivating a lot of the blame comes internally, right? So, um, you know, I would say for myself that I'm my worst critic, right? And people could probably relate to that. And um, so a lot of the blame that I experience is actually from, from myself, you know? And yes, you say, you know, of course, you know, so, so this is where it kind of like, um, in your example, for example, the Trying to, to be compassionate. I don't have enough resource to be compassionate to the person mm-hmm. outside. I need that. Right. For myself first. Okay, these are really great points. Let me see if I can remember them and respond to them. So, the first one this idea of being blameless, but then what happens when you get blamed and how bad it feels when we get blamed especially maybe when it's unjustified, you know, and how do you respond? How do you respond to that? It feels like, well, shouldn't I stand up for myself? I would say yes, you know, um, that, that, you know, set the record straight without defensiveness, if possible. So ideally, you would just state what's really true and that would be understood um so it's like the noble disciple okay you're right we're in a process we're in we're in a process we are a process <laughs> everything about this thing we think of as me is really process it's not an entity okay so this process is developing and at first you know, we're likely to respond really strongly to some kind of blame. Or like you said, we'll get to that part of turning inward, turning it on ourselves in a minute. But, you know, so how would I like to be when I'm blamed? Well, I'd like to be able to be calm, relatively unaffected, respond with an appropriate 
you know, description of what actually is the case, um, letting people know what my intentions were, whatever happened, whatever part that I might be blame might be blameworthy, might be a little bit true, then make amends. You know, work on not doing that again. And the whole thing without blaming myself. That's what I'd like to do. That's what, you know, someone who's really quite advanced on the path can do in real time. And don't think you can't get there. But it takes some practice. So even knowing that I want to get to that point where praise and blame aren't such a big deal and you can tell when you're pra- when you feel praise and how you hold that and letting that go by knowing that the opposite's going to come around too it's okay we live in this realm of dark and light karma we live in this realm of good and bad qualities my mother used to say there everything has its good and bad qualities and I can't yet find an example where she wasn't right about that. <laughs> so we're going to be dealing with this dark and light all the time and purifying because um, we're heading upwards. And so, you know, we, we feel blamed. First thing we can do is turn towards that feeling and deal with that feeling and not let the feeling push the reaction because we are really dragged around by feeling. <laughs> and so to, to learn how to not be, there's a lot of self-control that, or self-awareness, self-control that gets developed there. And it's not control like I'm just going to clamp it down. It's the kind of mastery, really, over how we respond, how we work with what we feel, how we discern that this feeling is not the feeling I want to respond from, how to work with that feeling, how to be present with it, how to investigate it. So the first three noble truths, you investigate that suffering. It's going to be suffering in there. You investigate it. You come to understand it. Second noble truth, you look for the cause of it. Why do I care? Why am I just not un- just understanding that this is what people do? They maybe they're jealous or maybe whatever their issue is, you know, this is just what happens in life. There's some cause underneath something about those powers that's not fully there yet. And then we can, observing that, really being present with that, usually it means in a somatic way, being present with the feeling in the body, letting ourselves really process it through. And when we we do that, we get to the third noble truth, the relief from that suffering. We see that feeling disappear and then we can respond and from wisdom rather than from feeling from hurt feeling 
and we can be less vulnerable the next time. And so this is an ongoing practice, you know, how to work with our own mind, our own heart. The word chitta in Pali, you can translate it mind or heart. And we work with it. And, And that's the first three noble truths. The Buddha knew exactly what we need to do. And we can. And so we do develop the skill. And then... You know, sometimes something might come up and it really surprises us. It's like, oh, wow, look at that. (laughs) Some flash of jealousy or anger or something. But it's more like out here, you know, it's like you're looking at it. You're not like immediately awash in it and reacting out of it. And that's the progress we make until... They say the arahant, they feel feeling detached. Pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. They know it for what it is. A feeling's just a feeling. It's going to go away. What really matters is like, what's my behavior? What's my ethics? What's, my, what's the level of my generosity and kindness, compassion? That's what really matters. And then the second part of what you said was about blaming ourselves. Um, in our culture, it's really a serious issue. Regret, guilt, remorse, self-blame, self-torture, pulling ourselves down, beating ourselves up. This is a really common thread in our culture. And it's not to say other cultures don't have their own poisons, <laughs> but we're really good at this. <laughs> and um, there's a lovely little book called um, Unseating the Inner Tyrant. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, Ajahn Sachito. And, you know, when we notice, when we start to acknowledge and recognize that this self-blame is actually toxic. That helps, and we get a start on it. Uh, learning how to work through it in exactly the same way as we would work through the blame for other, from others. You know, like being with the feeling. Where is it coming from? You know, like how do I like, see my way all the way through it for it to relax and dissolve? And it's, these are the patterns of the mind that we are able to change. And we get better and better at it as we change them. So never think, oh, this is the way I am. And never waste time thinking about how someone else caused this to be imprinted on your mind. Because that's just so fruitless, waste of time. And we need to use the time we have left. No matter how long we think we're going to live, we want to make the best of it. We want to really free ourselves. And this is how you do it, bit by bit. And somewhere along the way, some insight arrives, and really like a big chunk, like those 
icebergs that are melting, <laughs> you know, and suddenly you see things differently and you don't go back to seeing them the same way or have, and it doesn't go back to having the same power over you anymore. So this is all part of knowing, you know, what's skillful and what's unskillful. And putting the effort, the energy into to really changing our, our patterns. Yes? This is a small point. I love what you're saying in terms of, uh, I know it's, it is very difficult to obviously you know, uh, deal with those feelings, but they also, part of it is involves you kind of pro- understanding this process of, well, why am I feeling this way? Why is the other person feeling this way? But kind of seeing those more and more as impersonal. Mm-hmm. Impersonal process, because it seems like if Get to, if you can internalize the realization of the no self, then these things will hurt less. It's true. As we develop wisdom and insight into non self, things hurt less. That's true. We have to be careful, though, that we actually are operating from real insight and not kind of trying to bypass it and stuff it down. This is one of the pitfalls. So always we have, I always think of it as like walking on a ridge. One time I hiked um, to Angel's Landing in, is that Bryce Canyon or Zion? Zion. Zion. (laughs) Like, one side of the ridge is like a couple hundred feet down, and the other side looks like a couple thousand feet down. And you're on this edge, and you're walking out to this kind of flat area, hanging out over the canyon. And uh, am I describing this accurately for those who? <laughs> and it was the wind was blowing so strong, I thought I was going to blow off the mountain. Obviously, it didn't happen. but you know like walking that ridge with our feelings and not falling to the side of indulging in them building them up making them stronger thinking about that person or whatever not going there and also not going into stuffing it down, acting like it's not important. I'm, I'm better than this. I'm further along than this. It's like that's another huge pitfall. Staying on the, the ridge means I'm turning towards that feeling and I'm feeling it fully. Not adding to it, not throwing more fuel on the fire, but being present with it. And it's true that as we develop skill, we're present with it. We're not in it. So it's manageable. Um, There are a few processes that I had used for years, literally years. One of them was focusing. Some of you might know that little book from the, what, 70s or something. Um, And one of them was a process in a book called Undefended Love, which... That was an interesting interim. Uh, and then Feeding Your Demons by Lama Sultramalioni. So these are 
kind of methods for being able to turn towards what you feel in your body, not try to escape from it the 80 ways we've got to escape our feelings, (laughs) but to be present with it. And then these methods help set aside the story entirely and really just work with the feeling and the pattern that that feeling is arising out of. And then, you know, gradually start to, like you say, if we have insight into non-self, that's going to really help a lot. We don't have to take it personally. We don't have to take anything personally. There's no person here. We keep building it up, defending it, wanting to collect things around it. And it's hard to, like, see, like, how do we do this? You know, we have a human body. We have to take care of it. We need to keep it somewhat comfortable. So is there something wrong with, you know, lying on a soft bed when you get to be 69? I can tell you, yeah, it's, like, pretty necessary for me at this point. <laughs> you know, like, so it's like, no. But we also don't want to get caught up in just trying to pacify our dukkha because it doesn't work. Yes? Yeah, this is a very good question. How do we help someone else when we see them suffering, clinging to what is actually causing their suffering? How do we help? So here again, looking at how the Buddha taught and helped people is really helpful. The first thing you need is the permission. And we don't always get it. (laughs) So one of the patterns I had that I wanted to work, work through and dissolve was the tendency to give unsolicited advice. This was very early on and spending time in the monasteries in Thailand and I saw this tendency and I thought, okay, I'm going to make the determination. This is renunciation. Make the determination that I'm going to hold back and not give any advice until I'm asked. Oh, my God. (laughs) That was so hard. (laughs) And... I remember I I said, okay, I'm going to do this with everyone except my children. (laughs) 
And my daughter was like, why me? <laughs> why do I have to continue? So I had to think that over and let that go. It's amazing like how that can upset your usual patterns and also get at some of that arrogance. I mean, I'm not suggesting that any of that's coming because, you know, it can be just coming from compassion and kindness and wanting to help. But there can also be a tinge of I know better in there. So sitting with being being restrained with it really was a huge, wonderful practice that really was very informative and helpful in changing what was going on there. So the Buddha, you know, he was like, uh, he had very skillful ways of talking to people. Like he he saw this young man doing this practice of um, bowing to all the directions. It's a ceremony. And the Buddha is walking by and he sees him doing this. And it's a, it's a religious ceremony of the time. And he says, so why are you doing that? And this man says, well, my father on his deathbed said, you must pay homage to and bow to the directions. And there's a whole process. I mean, you have to bathe, and your hair's all wet, and you're bowing, and all this. And and so I do it every day. And the Buddha said, no, that's not the way we do it in the noble one's discipline. He's not giving any advice. He's just throwing out a little bait. <laughs> and of course, this man, young man says, well, how do you do it? And then the Buddha gives this beautiful teaching on the... the he, he, he draws um, relationships into the directions. So this direction means your direction with your children and parents. This direction means your direction this direction means your relationship with your partners. Over here it's your employee or your employees or your employer. Here it's your teachers or your students. And you know, he lays out how we should relate to each other in this incredibly beautiful way. And he said that's the way, you know, like you're faithful to your partner. And, you know, this, this young man probably had a wife, and he said, you give her nice things that she likes, you know, and you, you, um, you know, whatever. He goes through this list of things, you know, to basically have a happy relationship. And respecting your parents and doing certain things to take care of them. And then, you know, what parents do for their child in, in response, you know, help them learn about the world and introduce them to people who can help them and, you know, like all of these things. And you look at this whole layout and you think, wow, if we did that, what a beautiful life. And so how does that relate to us and how we see our, the suffering in our family or our friends? First of all, we got to, oh, this is another thing the Buddha said. If a monastic wants to criticize another monastic, first thing is you got to look to see if you're doing the same kind of thing. 
So there's always that, do I do that? How, how do I do that? Do I have the same thing going on? Because a lot of times the things we see out there, we haven't noticed yet, but they're in us too. And so that's first thing. And then as we purify that in ourselves, we become happier. So a lot of times you don't have to say anything. They notice. And then they're like, what are you doing? (laughs) And maybe that's a chance. Or maybe there's something that it feels like you can offer. um, And then maybe just in asking, would you be open to some a suggestion? Maybe they would be. But you got to go really carefully with that. And we also have to remember that everybody has their path. You know, sometimes we can't keep our loved ones from having to go through some of those hard times. That's how we learn. And so I had this motto when my kids were growing up, I'm just going to step in. I mean, I, of course, talked their ear off about all kinds of things, and I thought they weren't listening, like I said earlier. <laughs> oh, by golly, they, they were actually. <laughs> but... Um, in terms of by the time they were, you know, mid-teens, I'll just intervene if I think there's going to be long-term or permanent damage. Some restraint. I don't know. That's useful, but, yeah. Yes? Let's go back to that part, because I think the wording's a little bit different. So the question is, do we give what people want to them to sustain the relationship if they want something? Let's see. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't say it here. Giving. No, it doesn't. So... Right. Uh, one, go back. One. I'm not sure it's included here, but there's a wording of, about it, probably in a different, maybe in a different sutta, where it says, if they would benefit from receiving a gift. So you do, you do, it's not like you're just going to give them something to satisfy their sensual desires. Or because, yes. or because they're, you know, longing for it. That's not the point. 
Yeah, you you try to do what feels like it will be beneficial. If they're going to benefit from a gift, yeah. So, yeah, you definitely would want to be discerning about it. You don't want to give your kids all the toys they want. (laughs) Um, Or whatever, you know. Maybe you do, but, you know, there's going to be some balance that's going to have to happen later or something. But, yeah. We definitely want to use we want to use wisdom in our actions. And uh, this teacher that I've been mentioning, Ajahn Ganha, he's a nep- the nephew of Ajahn Chah, and he's had a, an incredible rep- reputation from the time he was in his twenties. And a number of Ajahn Chah's disciples that are our teachers lived with him, and they know him really well. And it has a very high um, everyone has a very high regard for him. And he often says wisdom solves the problem. So we do have difficult situations in life. It can be difficult to know what to do. There's a lot that's dependent on time, place, and situation. And so there's that uh, letting go of our own attachments to be able to see clearly and then being discerning about what, how to handle it. Okay. Anything else? Okay. So then I think we should go to the Dhamma Hall and meditate. And then in about 45 minutes or something, or 40 minutes, we'll chant, and then we'll close it down for the night. Of course, you're welcome. Oh, there's one more thing I want to show you. That's all right. You can. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.